World Snooker Tour podcast, and it's great to be joined today by someone who I think is now very firmly established as one of the all-time greats. It's Australia's Neil Robertson. Neil, thanks very much for coming in. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me. It's been a big year for you already off the table. You got married during the summer, so congratulations on that. Normally you would say to someone at this stage, how's married life been for the first few months? But you're together so long that it's probably just business as usual, really. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I think um, yeah, a few of the boys... Um, when I got here, I've asked how, how's married life, and I just say, well, it's just kind of uh, it feels like we'd already been married for for several years anyway, because you know we've been together for um, eleven, twelve years. So um, yeah, it was more about just um, you know, I guess putting the the cherry on top of the cake with in terms of the relationship and and getting married. And um, yeah, it was an unbelievable day. Um, it was uh, everything kind of Miller had hoped for, and, and myself included. So. Um, it was really fantastic for, for everyone who was there. And that includes your son, of course, and amazing for him that he'll be able to remember his parents' wedding. Maybe your daughter's perhaps a bit too young. <laughs> no, yeah, that, 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 that is right, actually. Yeah, Alexander remembers it really well, but um, we've got lots of photos of like Penelope and um, uh, at the wedding and everything, and, um, and she always sort of looks at the, you know, in, in the frames of photos and points to it and, and kind of remembers, um, you know, little things here and there as well. So... Um, yeah, that's really nice that, that we were able to sort of capture so many really good moments as well. Yeah, everyone in snooker is very happy for you. Now let's talk about your early days playing snooker in Australia. We know it's a sports-mad country, both forms of rugby, Australian rules, cricket, of course. We know soccer has actually become very big there. How was snooker viewed, Neil, and what did your mates think of you getting so into that sport at such an early age? Um, I mean, it started off with myself and my brother um, maybe once every couple of weeks um, on a like a Saturday morning, going into um, a snooker club called TC's uh, in Melbourne, and um, uh, and my brother and I would jump on one of like the really small pool tables, and my dad would be playing snooker with a couple of his friends. Um, they'd be playing like a, a game called um, uh, I think it was called Killer or something, where mm. you have um, all these balls in a like a little sort of um, container or something, and then you got to you know get on various different balls and stuff like that and um yeah so they used to play that and my brother and I used to play um yeah we just used to play pool um we weren't particularly very good or anything like that we just sort of enjoyed playing it was it was good fun um and then started to get more serious when uh, my dad found this other club to play at uh, and my brother and I then started. Then we started playing like every every weekend, every every Saturday with with my dad. And he'd play um, he'd play nine ball. It was like the first time when nine ball was starting to get really popular in Australia. Like it was like a new kind of sport, really, because in Australia it was just pretty much um, you know eight ball on like the small size, like the pub size tables or, or snooker. And then nine ball was slowly introduced, and that was much more fun for my brother and I because like really big pockets and stuff, and you know you're having more success with potting balls, and so we really enjoyed that. Um, and my dad also really enjoyed it as well. My dad went to like America to watch the world nine ball, um, I think on his um, on his honeymoon. Um, you know, went to Hawaii and all that sort of stuff, but also you know watched the the world nine ball, and so he sort of um, sort of really fell in love with Q sports himself. And then I think about six months after that, um, the person who was um, selling his half of, of the club um, offered it to my dad and my dad bought it up. And then, um, and then that led to my brother and I playing a lot more, you know, it was, it was really fun. It was, it was a really exciting adventure that, you know, your dad's sort of, you know, one of the owners of the club and, 
um, you know, free pool, obviously, free pool, snooker and stuff. And um, and my dad started running junior competitions every every Sunday morning. He would um, print out all these leaflets. Um, he would put them in the letterboxes of, you know, people's houses um, and um, he will go to the schools and, and, and get more kids playing from schools. And so my dad did a huge amount of work for um, junior Q Sports in, in Australia and in, in Melbourne in particular. And, yeah, and all of a sudden on a Sunday morning you'd have like 30-odd kids rock up and they wouldn't be very good, but they got better and they got better. And um, I think like the prize was something like a, a $10 voucher or something mars bar can of coke and um yeah that that was enough to to keep my brother and i really interested and try and win and um yeah it was it was a fantastic time actually looking back on it with with a lot of really fond memories and that sort of just started the the love for the game for my brother and i as well we we started entering junior competitions and doing really well um uh, my brother and I really dominated the the junior sort of snooker and pool scene um, in Victoria and, and, and Australia as well. And, um, yeah, so that, that's where it all started. There probably wasn't much profile for the game, though, in Australia. I mean, everyone knew who Eddie Charlton was, obviously, sure. like people who played Q Sports. I think um, it was still really popular back then because, you know, this is before, um, y- you know, sort of around, this would have been around sort of like 94, 95, I think, um, my dad took me to um, would have been I think ninety five. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah, it was ninety five when the Australian Open. Um, you had um, Anthony Hamilton and Chris Small come over. John Higgins as, won it, as, didn't he? Yeah, he won it the year yeah. before, but I wasn't I wasn't playing snooker then. Right. Um, yeah, the year before it was. I mean, I really missed out because you had um, John Higgins, Mark Williams, and Willie Thorne come over, and you know. Um, John Higgins had like 14 centuries in a tournament or something and so I missed out on that one but um, as I walked into the Bentley Club Anthony Hamilton was clearing up the colours and made um, made 144 um, so Anthony was amazing to watch obviously um, and then you know Chris Small was there as well Chris Small was more slightly unknown uh, Michael Judge was there also mm, actually back on the tour um, yeah so there was, there was you know you used to get a few players coming from overseas to, to play in that, at that event um, and so the, the snooker was really popular in, in Australia and it was obviously before the times of like, um, you know, s- uh, satellite television with multiple channels and stuff and before kind of the internet really took hold. So people spent a lot more time sort of going out to do things, whereas obviously now it's much harder to get people outside of their home. So um, the participation rate was really high in Australia. The, the amateur game was, was very, very strong. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was it was a great environment for for myself to be in because you know the, the um, at junior level the standard was was really really high. Australia always had um, players you know reaching the the quarterfinals, semifinals of the World Under Twenty Ones, the World Amateurs. Um, yeah, Quinton obviously won the the World Under Twenty Ones mm-hmm. uh, in '94, I think it was. Um, so yeah, so it was it was. Um, you know, very, very strong Q sports at that time in Australia, and um, that that sort of paved the way for for myself to really break through. Yeah, so clearly more prominent than people over here would have perceived it as being in Australia. It's interesting you mentioned nine ball there in the context of recent events where Judd went off to play in the US Open. Now, having played a bit of nine ball in your youth, Neil, would that be something you'd ever be interested in doing? Um, I don't know. I think maybe like you know the way Judd treated it. I think it was like a nice kind of. It was like a working holiday, I suppose you could say. I think, um, you know, he seemed to kind of um, enjoy the experience and 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I watched. I didn't watch too much of it. I, I, I it kind of went as as how I thought. I thought he'd get through a few rounds, and then, and then we, when you come up against like a proper nine ball player who really knows what they're doing, like a snooker player can never win. Um, the breaks too strong, and they just know all the shots. They know all the kickouts. They the, all the doubles, the the jump shots, everything. You know, it's. Um, I mean, when I first started, like when I was playing snooker, and, and I didn't play too much nine ball. Um, yeah, you always think as a snooker player, you're just your your potting's far superior, so therefore you you know you 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 can beat any nine ball player. But it's not the case because obviously your technical advantage of being so precise potting is is taken away because for one the, the pockets are much bigger and it's a completely different sort of game. It's all about the positional play and and the whole array of different shots you can play. And obviously the break is is a massive part in that. I think um, one of the matches in the US Open, a guy. Um, lost the lag to break off, and that was actually the only time he hit a ball because the I think um, it may have been the guy playing Alex Paguline ran ten racks in a row, so it was just mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's kind of a, a very very tough um, a tough sport that. So um, yeah, it was good though that that Joe could you know maybe raise the profile a little bit and you know maybe uh, maybe a few more players will give it a go. I know there's like a big tournament. Um, Next calendar year in, in the UK, I think is UK it? Open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know that might get a couple of sneaker players playing. Just have to see, kind of what the calendar's like. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be against playing nine ball at all. I think it's like a. I really appreciate this, this, the skill sets of, of all the Q sports. You know, I'm not one who's just like snooker's far superior. Then that's that. I, I appreciate all all the uh, Q sports. Like you know, um, eight, you know, eight ball pool on, on on the small English tables and you know billiards, nine ball, and you know all of them. So. Um, yeah, I guess I'm pretty well-rounded with, with my respect for all sports. Famously, in your early days in snooker, you reached a certain point where you felt you weren't going to go any further. And I think it was the job centre. You were standing in line yeah. and you had a moment where you thought, no, I'm actually going to give this another go. Now, having made that decision, Neil, did you resolve to do things differently in any way to give you more chance of achieving your ambitions in a way that you hadn't done up until then? Yeah, what it was is that um, yeah, I had a few goes at it on the tour and the places I was living at in England... Compared to living in Australia, I, I wasn't too sure I wanted to make that that um, change in lifestyle. Where, for one, I wasn't too sure where I could get in the game, and then was was it actually worth living in the other side of the world away from friends and family? And I kind of come up to that, come to the decision that, you know, maybe it's just not for me. You know, living in you know these types of places and you know very at times a very depressing kind of country if things aren't going well for you. I think that uh, the UK is like a great place to live in if if you've got a really stable life and things are going well. But I think uh, as an overseas player and, and many have fallen victim of it before with the homesickness and just struggling to kind of feel as though you're really making a life for yourself um, because it, you have to restart everything. You have to find new friends. You have to like everything, you know. And um, so I, I was... I was at a bit of a crossroads really where so what I was probably going to do was probably end up sort of getting a job doing something I'm not too sure what it would have been I didn't have any qualifications for anything I left school when I was 15 um, so it probably would have been a job where I would have had to spend a lot of hours doing it to in terms of to make an income which would have meant very little sort of time to be put you know practicing snooker and um, and also I think that um uh, Australia had lost like the tour card as well so there was no kind of clear path in Australia to be able to qualify and get onto the main tour I would have had to save up money for the airfares and everything and to live in England for a few months practicing and then 
um, maybe playing one of the, the UK tour events or something to try and re-qualify. So the task at head was absolutely huge and um, and I think I'd just fallen off the tour at that point, you know, maybe the year before. So I wasn't really sort of completely in love with the game. Um, and uh, yeah, but then yeah, I remember being in the queue and just like it was all kicking off. Someone in front of me on the queue wasn't, wasn't going to get his like dole check or something. Um, he didn't meet the certain requirements or job, he didn't attend enough job interviews um, to, to fall into the, um, uh, the part where he could actually sort of get paid for the week. Um, and so I just like turned around and I left. It was just like a really awkward scene. Um, so I just went home and just sort of like twiddling with my thumbs, sort of, well, I mean, what am I going to do, you know? Um, and so um, another week um, passed and then um, it was announced the World Under-21s was going to be in New Zealand, um, which is, uh, a, you know, a pretty small flight um, from Melbourne, you know, maybe four hours or something like that. Um, and so yeah, so I won the uh, I won the Australian Under Twenty Ones, which I mean, which which I was always going to do because I was, I was still like I was still like one of the best players in Australia, and um, so the World Under Twenty Ones being in New Zealand, um, uh, and a guy called uh, Keith Warren who was running the um, Wellingborough Academy where Ding was and Peter Abdon and, and people like that. Um, he was Peter Abdon's manager around the time he won the world title, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, something like that. So. Uh, I knew Keith from when I was on the tour a couple of times where Keith looked after a lot of the overseas players, like the, especially like the Chinese boys that would come over, guys from Thailand and stuff, and you know, James Watson and that. And um, yeah, I always had a good relationship with him. I think that he was one of the few um, people from the UK who could understand how hard it is being an overseas player. I think that not many people realised at the time, uh, maybe starting to now, and he always tried to give the give the overseas players a chance. And he emailed me saying that um, uh, Steve Misford, who won the World Amateur Championship in Egypt, Steve Misford went over to um, went over to the UK and, and stayed in Wellingborough, and, you know, practicing practicing there every day. Um, and I just beaten Steve eight one in the final Australian Open, played really really well. And so Steve went over and he was telling Keith how well I was playing and that, like, Neil's really focused and, like, you know, his talent is, is far too good to be stuck in Australia. He needs a chance, you know. And Keith emailed me saying that um, he'd been speaking to Steve and that uh, if I performed well in the World on 21s that I could um, be given one of the five um, overseas wildcard spots, which was allocated. Um, and at the time, before that, World Snooker didn't have any allocation to overseas wildcards or anything. It was, you know, you had to win the World under the World Amateur Championship mm-hmm. or World on 21s. It was pretty much the only path through. And um, so he flew over to New Zealand with, um, with, with Ding Junhui and uh, the other sort of like Chinese and, and Thailand players. I think you had um, uh, Tianpeng Fei was also there as well. Um, uh, Lu Song, so I mean the field was crazy. You had Mark Allen as well, Pankajivani. Um, you know, you had you had a lot of really, really, really good players. Arguably the strongest ever field in the world on twenty ones. And um, I got through the group stage, and then um, I think Keith said that uh, it, it's all looking good for me to to get one of the spots and that. Um, and I remember in the last sixteen, I remember um, I think I was playing Habib Sabah from um, Bahrain, and uh, I was. Um, I was three 0 down, and uh, he was playing really well. And then Keith walked in, and, and I was thinking in the back of my mind, I think, oh god, maybe he's like regretting giving me, like you know, giving me the chance for the wild card, or telling me that I'm, I'm looking good for it anyway. 
And I was 3-0 down first of five, and then I had three 90s in a century to win 5-3. And then I was like, oh, that, you know, a bit of relief there. And then um, I beat, uh, beat Alex Davies 5-4. I uh, beat Panka Giovanni 5-2 and then I'm playing Ding Junhui in the, in the semi-finals and Ding was obviously, mm. you know... The chosen one. Yeah, 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 because Ding had won the World Under 21s the year before and he was only 15 and um, Ding and I Ding and I had a really good match. Um, I won 8-6 from 5-3 down. Then I beat Lu Song in the final uh, who... Lu Song beat uh, Mark Allen in the semi-finals. Really strong um, field when you list all yeah, these Yeah, it was names, crazy, yeah. crazy field, yeah. It was like... And you had lots of other players from... Thailand and China who had been on the tour since and um, yeah really really super strong field um, and uh, yeah so I beat Lu Song in the final and um, yeah World well Under 21 champion sort of I know that I'm getting the tour spot now and then then that's what kind of really sort of changed everything in, in, in the space of a couple of months. And you uprooted yourself and moved to England full time to give it a real go. Looking back now, it wasn't actually that long in terms of years between all that happening and you becoming world champion, as you did in 2010. It probably felt like a very long battle at the time. <laughs> and I remember there was a wonderful moment. It's one of my favourite moments at the Crucible, actually, Neil, when you had won the final, you'd potted the winning ball, you were still at the table, you blew a kiss to your mum, yeah, who'd yeah. flown over from Australia. And it just seemed to me like that was a real moment of release for you, that you'd really mm. had to go through a lot, put in a huge amount of effort, and this was the moment that it all became worthwhile for you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess you say it did happen pretty quickly because I think that um, although I had a couple of goes on the tour before, I never kind of really kind of count that in my career as being able to give it a proper go because um, everything was just, the whole tour was set up different. There was no academies. It was it was kind of me flying from Australia to the UK a couple, literally a couple of days before I'm playing. I got uh, a day or two to try and adjust to the condition then I got to beat you know seasoned professionals and I did it properly this time where I went to Cambridge playing um, Cambridge Snooker Centre um, myself Steve Misford and Joel Younger we were all on the tour then as well so two really good friends to have with me which which really helped a lot um, uh, Phil Mumford who was the manager of the club also um, said that um, you know Joe Perry was moving to the club so that was huge like Joe Joe moving to the club Wow, it was amazing because, um, I mean, Joe Perry in practice, especially back then, was, was, was as good as anyone in the world. And so he used to give me hidings like 15-2, 15-3. It was just absolutely incredible. So he really helped um, accelerate my development like absolutely massively. Um, and there's no way I would have progressed through the, the ranks as quickly as I did if, if it wasn't for him. Um, because when I was coming up against guys who were ranked in the 30s, I was thinking, well, I mean, they're not as good as Joe. So, And I could gauge my results against Joe in practice and... And I know that you know on my day I could really give Joe a game and sometimes beat him. So I was thinking, well, if I can play any co- anywhere near close to my best, then I've got a great chance. And so it kind of gave me a bit of belief there as well. And then so, I mean, from that season, from 2003, 2004 in Cambridge, uh, I got to the top 16 within three seasons, which was like incredible, really. I think I got 68, then 28, and then I got to 13. You know, so I really sort of absolutely blasted through the qualifiers and... Um, won like 20 odd matches in a row I won the Masters qualifier as well mm. like my first season back on the tour which was like eight matches in a row where you know I beat a lot of really good players in that tournament as well and there was only one place in the Masters from that so yeah. you had to win it to yeah, get through yeah that's right yeah I beat, yeah, beat Dominic Dale um, uh, beat Dominic 6-5 and um, yeah so uh, yeah that, that was huge and then 
playing Jimmy at the conference center. Wow, what an amazing experience that was. I always remember sort of being um, down at the, the ground floor, kind of waiting to go up those stairs, and you can just hear. It's like you must, must have felt like a gladiator or something coming up through those stairs in the crowd, and everything's around you. You know, you don't really know where to look. Like, it's just, like, incredible. Um, and I've never experienced anything like that, you know. And then, you know, obviously then Jimmy comes out, and it's like a whole new level altogether, and it's the most terrifying experience I've ever had in the, in the sport so but to be able to you know um you know queuing up in the job center sort of nine months before that to playing you know Jimmy at the conference center the Masters mm. <laughs> yeah it's pretty incredible so it, um, it's like you're only thinking about that now for the first time how amazing that was yeah yeah because you know it's um yeah it's an interesting story and you, you only kind of will get it through probably players coming from overseas you know it's 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 really strange you know because i'd never been to that venue before ever um you know so even like when i qualified for the crucible for the first time um a year after that um that would be that was the first time i'd ever been to the crucibles when i was there as a player I never went there as like you know, as a kid going there with my dad or something and watching as a fan. It was like, like most British players would have <laughs> experienced, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was amazing. And, and again, my first my first uh, appearance at the Crucible was against Stephen Hendry when it was world number one. So I've got to consider myself very lucky that my debuts at the Crucible and the Masters were against Jimmy and, and Hendry. Let's talk about that 2010 World Final. It's an unusual thing to be in the final for the first time and go into it as the favourite, which you did marginally, even though Graham Dot had been champion before. I think you were the man fancied to win the final. But against Graham over four sessions, you really, really have to earn it. And it was such a slog. Yeah, it was. I, I remember... Um when I won the semi-final, my mum had left the voicemail saying that she just left Singapore, um, and she left the voice message at like when I was eleven uh, five up or something against Ali. Um, so she had no idea until she landed in the UK that whether I'd be in the final or not. Um, so that kind of really added a lot of pressure. For one, it was like incredibly emotional seeing my mum for the first time in uh, sort of like about ten months. Um, and then she was there on the fi- on the day of the final, so I was like really thinking like you know I just don't want to kind of like let her down, you know, um, which kind of really w- was difficult to deal with from an emotional point of view because uh, as soon as I won the semi final, I was extremely confident no matter who I was playing in the final I was, that I was going to win. Um, I was playing incredibly well, um, you know, apart from that last sort of few frames against Ali, I was, I was pretty much flawless, and I think he's even said so himself. Um, and then, um, yeah, so going into the final uh, where, where it was Graham, um, who had been in the final before and obviously beat me in the quarters in 2006 when he went on to mm. win it, when, you know, when he beat me 13-12. So, and Graham was like one of those players where, you know, he's a, top, he was, he's a top 16 player all day long, especially at the time. But then, but when it comes to the Crucible, he's always like a top four or five player. You know, it's just a completely different animal altogether when, you, when you're playing Graham at the Worlds. And so um, I remember starting off a little bit shaky, uh, I went five three down. Um, he certainly seemed to deal with it better with the, you know more experience and that. Um, but then the second session, I played really really well um, and could have easily been um, you know sort of ten six up really. I was nine seven up in the end, but I, I probably should have been further in front. And it kind of set the tone really for the last sort of session and a half where I kept sort of going in front and Graham just you just never give in and. Um, you know, even if, you know, 
even if um, you know he needs three or four snookers with one red left, he's carrying on and you know, the frame's going for like another 20, 25 minutes and it's just really hard to just like, you know, you, you think he's sort of knocked him down for the final time and he just keeps getting back up all the time. And, you know, players like that are very tough to shake off. And um, so the last session became like a real sort of slog and where it was all about sort of um, mental concentration and who could sort of really last the longest. And then I could tell he was really, I, f- I could tell that he was starting to really fatigue a lot um around i think around maybe like when i went 13 11 up or something i could i could start to see him sort of just tiring and so then all of a sudden i wasn't in any rush to make it an open game because i know that he would probably start to prefer it to be more open because he doesn't have much concentration left um so then i thought right well now i'm gonna sort of give him some of his own medicine i suppose by making it really tough as well and um at the time, I'd accumulated enough experience to uh, know how to make that kind of happen. I think you've, you've seen, we've seen sort of Selby over the years and Higgins over the years be able to sort of really turn the turn the screw on, um, make things really tough for the opponent where they get to the point where they have to start taking sort of risks that they wouldn't normally take. And um, so I was really happy with how, how I was able to pull that off. And um, yeah, it was really tough. It was, it was exhausting the last couple of frames, but... Um, I think that when you're in the world final, you, you, you do absolutely whatever it takes to win. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, an incredible, incredible moment for sure. Well, it's hard to describe how Neil Robertson's feeling at this moment. Words can't describe it, John. Yes, unbelievable. It's what every player dreams of. Graham Dot has come back. He's now the player he was. Fair play. But take nothing away from Neil Robertson here. There'll be a lot of emotion coming out of him, and the pockets now are looking like dustbin lids. He's the champion of the world, the Bradford champion of the world. Took a lot of heart, took a lot of courage. Both players deserve great credit. But Neil Robertson, after a tremendous week, is the champion of snooker player of the world. I know what it's like to be in a country outside Britain that's just produced a world snooker champion because it doesn't happen very often and I remember when Ken won it in 97 there was a big open top bus parade through the centre of Dublin he won sports personality of the year so that's how big it was in Ireland what was it like in Australia in terms of the reaction to your success was it what you expected it would be yeah it was huge it was like front page news like I was branded as you know our world champion um I think um the only well, the only thing about it was is that um, Alexander was was Miller was due to give birth to Alexander within like a few days of the final, so um, I couldn't really go back home to Australia and absorb it all instantly straight away. Um, had to wait a couple of months until I could well about another sort of six weeks until I could go back home. Um, but when I did, I was on loads of like TV shows and like radio and Eddie McGuire, the president of the Collingwood Football Club. Who is my? That's my AFL team, which is like you know the, the biggest club in Australia. Um, I was talking to him on the radio. He loved it because he knew that I was a big Collingwood fan, um, and he said that when I come home, they'll parade the World Championship trophy around the MCG for me before like a really big Collingwood match. And so I did that in front of eighty three thousand at the MCG on 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 the on the in the car and open open yeah, car. I've seen the pictures like, it going amazing. around, just yeah. like wow, it was just absolutely unbelievable and. Um, that was just absolutely incredible, you know, to do that. You know, Collingwood St Kilda, which um, which ended up being the, the the grand final a couple of months later, where Collingwood won. So, 
it was an amazing sort of sort of year for me where I became world champion. Chelsea did the double. They won the league. They won the FA Cup. Alexander was born. I got to world number one for the first time. Collingwood won the AFL grand final. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty awesome year. Yeah, you would have loved 2010 to go on forever, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite an achievement in itself that this long after winning the world championship, Neil, you still go there every year as one of the favourites. Now, you haven't managed to win it again since. You haven't actually been back to the final. And a lot of people... I've made out that you've got some sort of mental block now about the Crucible. But the thing is, it's getting harder all the time, isn't it? And it's not as if you're getting knocked out by low-ranked players. It's generally real superstars of the game who are stopping you. Yeah, that's it. I think uh, every year I go in as one of the favourites, and, you know, rightly so. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, the last three three years, the quarterfinals, I lost to, you know, Higgins, Selby and Curran, who have got as good a record as anyone there in the tournament in the last 10 years. So... You know, what I found is is that, um, you know, I come up against the attacking players and we go toe-to-toe and I always come well out on top. Um, obviously, you're not going to play players who want to play the way that you want to play and especially at the Crucible, they have time to stop you. Um, whereas even in a best out of 19, you can take the game away from someone very quickly. Um, and I think that um, at the Crucible, it's always been that, that kind of second session where... Um, you know, even one where, where I was playing Barry Hawkins, I went out in front early, but he just never went away. Um, and, and the same with um, with Higgins and Kyron. Mark Mark played the whole quarterfinal two years ago on his terms. It was very tight. Every frame seemed to go for 45 minutes and it was really, really tough to break him down. And um, it was just a masterclass of sort of safety and defensive play. It was, it was incredibly, completely shut me out. And um, something I said that I'd never let happen ever again. And you know the way I played um, last season sort of certainly showed that. But you know, Karen still found a way to, you know, if there was a couple of mistakes in the frames, or if my my positional play was just my positional play was about five percent off from completely just running away with that match. I, I remember going five two in front. Um, I had half a chance to go six two. If I go six two, then in my eyes, I think the match is over. I, I you know, going six two up, I, I can't really see anyone in the game coming back against me in, in, in that kind of format. I think that I just run away with it. So that's what I was looking to do last year and I was really close to breaking the game open against Kyron on a few times. I just lost the white a couple of times and then I missed like the, the sort of six out of 10 recovery pot required to win the frame. I remember that happening a few times in that second session where I could have forged on, you know, maybe going three, four frames in front and then, you know, then kind of like the match is almost over really. Um, and then... You know, but then all of a sudden we're pl- you know a couple of mistakes. We're playing 35, 40 minute frames. You know, I'm losing my rhythm. He's got a very good technique where um, he's very set and, and the same every time, and he plays it like a kind of like a slower kind of tempo that he's more accustomed to. Um, and and then the final session, uh, he played amazing snooker really. But um, yeah, no, he played really well. And, and like you say, I've lost to kind of crucible specialists. You know, I think that um, I think that uh, probably what went wrong last year in the quarterfinals. That I noticed that um, William Williams was doing that break off where he's just rolling in behind yeah. the pack and you're not leaving a red on. And that when I was playing Jack, I kept breaking off. The break off was fine, but I kept sticking reds out all the time, like comfortable shots to nothings. And Jack kept knocking him in, but he wasn't uh, quite as clinical as maybe what he could have been. Um, because I was playing very well, so any kind of mistake he was making, I was winning the frame in one visit and. I think that was maybe in the back of his mind, thinking, well, if I make a mistake, Neil will clear up. 
So against Kyron, the first session I was breaking off and I was leaving Kyron these long reds, but he wasn't knocking him in. And I was probably thinking, well, you know, do I really want to keep sticking these balls out? And so I noticed Ronnie started rolling up behind the pack and then Higgins started doing it. And I was thinking like, oh, maybe there's like something to this. So then I started doing it and I started doing it in the second session. And the thing is, is that when you start doing that roll up behind the, um, the pack, the frames very rarely do they become like open frames, open scoring frames, because you get a lot of safety battles at the start, and then not many reds come out off the break off. And so I feel as though I lost all the moment, all the attacking momentum, and it probably fell into Kyron's hands a little bit. And um, so maybe that's where you know I think that at the worlds, maybe you just got to have one or two people around you who are there with you, just to keep an eye on things and make sure that you're always dictating the pace of the game. Because I feel as though every time I've lost there. It's always been to someone who's really sort of gritty, determined, who's not going to go away, who makes it really tough. And I, and it keeps happening every year where I lose the match and I'm thinking like, you know, I should have just been over-aggressive, if anything, not sort of be too cautious. And I think Kyron pointed that out, I think, after, um, in his interview afterwards. He felt as though I kind of started to play within myself a bit and, and he, he was absolutely right. I did. I started to kind of not take the risks that I would normally take. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I paid the price once again, so... Sort of going back next year, I have to be willing to lose a match sort of 13-4 and, and, and go at it playing my way. Because I know that if I get to the semi-finals, then it's just a completely different ball game. It's one table set up, you've got all the room, you've got the whole crowd watching you. It's a completely different type of pressure and the kind of pressure that, um, the type of pressure I really thrive in. So that, that's the task that, that's facing me at the world. It's, got, it's no, no, not a mental block or anything like that. Like if I ever, I've never sort of... Um, missed any crucial frame balls or anything like that it's just that you know at the world championships you really need to um really need to get the game plan right and and i think safe to say i've probably got that wrong the last few years going into quarterfinals against really really determined opponents you know you can't you can't play sean murphy jack Mazowski, and mark allen every round you know you're gonna have to play a guy that will make it really really tough for you because you know i think especially watching the tour championship whoever took me on aggressively you know, um, copped a heavy beating. Um, and then even when I played Mark in the semi-final, I knew what I had to do. I knew I had to be over-aggressive because if I start playing long frames against Mark, then you're going to become second best. And I probably didn't have that mindset against Kyron. I probably wasn't aware of how good he was at sticking in and being really determined. I always saw of him more as an attacking kind of player, which he is. He is a very good attacking player, but he's also got the side of the game where he can really get stuck in and, and win the gritty frames as well, which... Um, maybe I slightly took for granted because I haven't seen a lot of Karen play, um, you know, in that type of sense. So, yeah, it's it's something that um, hopefully I've learned the final lesson with that, and um, yeah, can start playing all the matches on my terms and, and win it a few more times. It's interesting listening to you, Neil. It just underlines everything I've always thought about you, that you're constantly analysing. And you just seem to be someone who is endlessly fascinated by the game of snooker and always trying to come up with new ways of looking at it, new ways of doing things and new ways of trying to get an edge over other players. Yeah, and that's that's like any other sport at the highest level, you know. it's. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, snooker is like, it's certainly a sport where... It is very individual where you're at the table, you're in complete control. So it's not like um, maybe in the same way as like maybe, you know, two boxers are looking at each other with certain tactics. But um, play styles and, and things like that are certainly something you have to be aware of and and and, f- and focus on, on playing the game on your terms and how you enjoy playing. Because as soon as you stop enjoying the contest, um, that's when a lot of mistakes start to creep in. So... Um, 
that's something I've always admired with with Ronnie over the years is that you know he's not afraid to to be beaten heavily as long as he's playing on his terms. You know, I think that when I've played Ronnie before and, you know, sometimes when I've lost to him, sometimes when I've beaten him, he's always played the same, you know, and he was always willing to back himself 100% no matter what. And um, I think that's something that um, is, is to be admired for sure. Stephen Hendry was very much the same. Famously, he had a conversation with you in which he had some fairly strong words, actually, about your break building. Oh, ability. yeah. <laughs> so what exactly was it that you then went and started doing differently and then became this unbelievable century machine? Uh, I mean, I remember, yeah, it was, I was playing... Uh, I was playing Selby in the quarters of the UK and I was 4-0 up and then I had a few chances and I kept losing the white positionally and um, I started like playing on memory and Mark ended up winning the match and I was just talking to Hendry at the bar afterwards, uh, Hendry had retired at that, that was the first year Hendry retired and was doing work for BBC and um, I was just talking to him and um, various, just about various things of the game, that was the first time he was kind of really approachable you know, to talk about things because that, when he was a player, you, you know, you couldn't really talk to him that much about the game. He didn't want to give anything away. No, to that's right. Yeah, um, and uh, I was just talking to him about break building process and you know how he went about it. And I was a good scorer back then, but nothing like what you know what what I become. And um, I was talking to Henry through my process of how I break build and stuff, and he said that it sounded very amateurish the way I do it, and that my potting gets me out of so much trouble. You know, if if a top player who had that same thought process um, as me, you know, break building, but wasn't as good a potter, they they would be nowhere near ranked as high as what they were. Is the fact that my potting would always get me out of a lot of trouble. And so Henry says I need to start working on you know a few different things, and not just sort of accepting landing straight on the black all the time. Um, because as soon as you start landing straight on balls, you have to start trying to ma- manipulate angles and um, you can only go forwards and backwards, um, whereas you're always leaving yourself angles on balls and you always got you can always put the white wherever you want. So that became a lot more of the focus. Um, you know, it gave me a different couple... Over the years, he's given me a few different exercises to work on, which have been really good. And, um, yeah, that was sort of, I guess, um, the kind of kick out the backside I suppose that I needed to try and really um, take that part of my game to, to, to a new level. A lot of people in sport are talking about mental health now Neil and it's accepted as something that people do discuss openly which I'm sure we all agree is a good thing. You talked about it when it wasn't perhaps so fashionable to do which must have been difficult for you. You've spoken in more recent times about your good lady having some mental health issues as well and how tough that's all been for you. It goes back to what we were saying earlier. People like to criticise and they like to point the finger at sportsmen who aren't doing what's expected of them but they just don't know what's going on in people's lives off the table and sports people are human beings as well and they've got all these things to contend with yeah that's right I mean and you know that was probably like apart from like the last three years at the Crucible I've been mentally in a really good place to to win the event but probably the three years before that I had absolutely no chance going there it was those three years pretty much like a wipeout in terms of um, my chance of winning the event because I remember it was incredibly tough during that period um, when Miller was really struggling with like anxiety and depression and um, it was just a miracle that I could kind of achieve what I was achieving on the table, which was um, kind of hiding the, the problems that were actually going on. You know, it was, it was really, really tough to, you know, um, when you're with someone who, who's struggling and then you've got to try and 
you know, convince yourself it's the right thing to go away for a week and a half, going to China or going to, to certain events, and you know deep down that you shouldn't be going. Um, is really, really hard, but you know, at the same time, you don't really want people to sort of start asking questions and wondering what's going on. And um, so, so yeah, so I mean, you know, there's a few years of, of world championship sort of um, uh, world championships that I, I just no way was I any kind of in any kind of place to win them. Um, but I remember sort of going in there, winning one or two tournaments somehow. Um, and still being one of the favourites, even though deep down I knew that there, there was no way I was going to be able to sort of go the two and a half weeks. There's just no way. Um, so it wasn't until that I actually sort of, that Miller and I started speaking about it, that it actually really helped and um, really helped her and, and helped me. And then I was comfortable being away again, which, you know, shown the last few years, my results have, have come as a consequence of that. And, um, yeah, she's she's been absolutely incredible, really. She's... Um, you know, one of the most inspirational people I've I've, I've ever ever ever, be, ever um, been in the company of, and you know she's be able to sort of um, you know get on top of the, the mental health thing and um, you know get a master's degree at Cambridge University, just an incredible master's you know, degree. Yeah, first class degree. Wow, yeah, in criminology, in criminology, um, and uh, you know which takes an unbelievable amount of of work, especially on top of you know, raising our son when, when I'm away as well, Alexander. So, um, you know, she's one of these kind of rare people that, you know, you could almost write a book on really. It's just absolutely amazing. And, and she's, you know, continually making me a better person and helping me understand things. And, um, yeah, so just, um, you know, I'm incredibly proud of her and what, what she's been able to achieve, you know, over the last sort of like five or six years um, is far greater than what I've been able to achieve on the table for sure. Let's change the mood entirely, Neil. Why Chelsea? Um, I remember moving to uh, I remember moving to the UK in two two thousand and one, uh, and I never really liked football at that point at all. The only football I knew was uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo hmm. and uh, David Beckham. That that was all I knew. And um, oh, and, and and Zinedine Zidane, and because I remember watching the World Cup in um, in '98 with my dad, and all the talk was Zidane and and Ronaldo, and we we stayed up and we I don't know got up at like four o'clock in the morning to watch that because that the final. Even if you don't like football or soccer, then but you still kind of watch the World Cup, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so I remember coming over and um, I was watching sort of match of the day highlights and stuff because. Um, back then, it was only like four TV channels to watch, I think. And, <laughs> you know, there wasn't much entertainment on the TV apart from Coronation Street and EastEnders or something. Um, so Match of the Day would, would be on. And, and I never could watch like a game of football from the first minute to 90. I just didn't really understand the skill or formations or the tactics or anything. I just wanted to see goals being banged in because that's what I was used to in AFL. It was like a very high-scoring sport and basketball and stuff like that. Um so, but I remember watching Chelsea, and they were a really good um, team, full of like a lot of international players. Like um, they had more. Uh, I think Ranieri, yeah, Ranieri was the manager, and um, so I remember they had, um, you know, they had Hasselbank and Good Johnson, who were scoring like a lot of goals at the time, and really entertaining to watch. And you know, Zola was was obviously very skillful, and he scored like this um, uh, sort of like a like a heel flick kind of goal against Norwich in the FA Cup um, which was like an awesome um, piece of skill which I'd never sort of seen before and so I just always liked 
liked watching Chelsea. I didn't really have any allegiance to any kind of club. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I knew who Man United were because of David Beckham. Um, but yeah, I always liked watching Chelsea. I, I liked the kit. And so I just like, I liked them and, you know, they, they were doing well. They were a good team. And um, yeah, so my, I was there for about six months and I went back home to Australia. And then, um, yeah, I always kept tab on the results of, of the Premier League sort of since then. And um, yeah, saw Chelsea doing well. And then, uh, uh, yeah, then, then when I came back in 2003, 2004, um, I just kind of continued sort of supporting them, you know. And then, um, and then I think I remember watching... I was watching the Masters uh, in 2004. I was watching it on TV at the club and um, John Terry was, was in the crowd and they made a big deal that he was in the crowd. You know, the Chelsea, the young Chelsea centre-half who was coming through. And um, John was in the team then and um, a number of other the English players and still had a really good international feel. And I just liked the vibe. Roman Abramovich took over and then invested, you know, hugely in the squad and stuff. And then it was this incredibly, very exciting kind of adventure to be on, you know. And um, no one really had a problem with it. Oh, well, Joe Perry certainly didn't have a problem with it until until we started winning. And then, <laughs> well, I'm an Arsenal <laughs> fan like, too, so I know how how he felt at that yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, but that created a lot of really good sort of banter amongst me and Joe um, at the club every day and stuff like that as well. So. You know, it's um, obviously not the best time for Arsenal at the moment, but hopefully they can sort of get back to that. But um, yeah, that, that's that's how it all started. And on a similar theme, are you still playing FIFA? Um, my son occasionally makes me play um, the odd game here or there, but um, I'll never play as much as what I used to because I used to play way too much. And those kind of really ultra-competitive uh, video games um, you know, aren't really a good mix for me because I get too sort of involved with them and then... Yeah, start to lose focus of, of other things that are kind of going on that I, that I should be doing. So, um, yeah, but um, every now and again with Alexander, I'll, I'll play a little bit here or there, but, um, yeah, not, not, not too much. One thing that has become a real trend in the game in recent years is a lot of players going vegan. Now, not everyone. I can't see John Higgins or Mark Williams going down that road anytime soon, some of the old stagers. But you're Mark someone... might want to sort his guard out, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, now, you've spoken uh, about the benefits, actually, that it has brought to you. So what was it that sent you down the road of veganism? And is it something now that you're going to stay with for life? Um, I mean, it was something that I was always very curious about. I think that um, my mum was uh, been vegetarian for 13 years or something like that. So whenever I'd go, to, go back to Australia, my mum would always make me these like really amazing vegetarian meals and stuff. And so... When I would go back to Australia for a couple of months, I was pretty much vegetarian for a couple of months anyway, and uh, I had absolutely no problem with it at all. So I think that I was looking for certain little edges, and I noticed that um, you know traveling and you, I don't know, you're kind of eating various takeaway foods at airports, and you know, especially going to China, and you know you're not really too sure what's in the food. Um, and then I'd always find that coming back from China, I'd kind of have an upset stomach or. You know, I just felt sort of tired traveling around. And um, I noticed Peter was, 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 was really heavily involved in that time. And, you know, he was speaking really positively about it. Um, I think that a couple of athletes were also starting to go kind of more plant-based diet-wise. And, um, yeah, so I was just curious. I thought, well, you know, I mean, it's worth a try, um, you know, for a couple of weeks. And, um, yeah, so I spoke to Peter about it, just like, hey, what, what's a good way to sort of start doing things? And he, um, 
uh, he gave me a book to read, which was about sort of it was it was about um, uh, healing kind of Crohn's actually and um, Crohn's disease. Yeah. So I read the book and it actually was was really really interesting. Had you had Crohn's disease? No, no I hadn't. No, but it was it was just like an, it was just really interesting because it talks the book talks about sort of changing the diet and how sort, certain foods work in your body, um, even not to go overboard with things that are vegan like obviously nuts and things like that because how they how they work in your system and how certain things are very acidic in your body and so I read this book and then um, I kind of followed what the book would say and everything that the book said that I adopted in my diet happened exactly to the T everything everything you know even how my how my stomach reacted how everything was and energy levels and thought wow this is actually really interesting and um I think so. I did that for a couple of weeks, and I felt really. Um, I felt as though I had a lot more kind of energy. I didn't need to drink coffee anymore, um, and you know. So, um, and it's actually a book that Peter recommended to Ali when he was really struggling with Crohn's, mm-hmm. and Ali thought that oh no, like you know that he'll. He, I think he said to Peter, yeah, yeah okay, yeah, I'll get it. But I remember talking to Ali about it, and Ali said he never even got the book. Mm-hmm. Until his Crohn's got really, really bad, and then I think Ali's um, Ali's uh, girlfriend at the time um, was 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 exploring all sorts of ways of of how he could sort of get over Crohn's, and and she found out that um, she could book this Skype interview with this doctor, who was the person who actually ended, who was the person who wrote the book, mm-hmm. and so Ali got had a Skype interview with him. Ali then ended up reading the book, and then that's incredibly helped his his Crohn's massively. So it's just kind of funny how those kind of things interlinked. And um, so then, yeah, but then I, you know, you do the research and you start to see certain athletes like Serena Williams and, you know, some NBA basketballers, um, uh, Premier League footballers, like Jermaine Defoe and Chris Smalling, a higher number of Premier League footballers are now sort of plant-based and Djokovic as well has been plant-based. He was plant-based a few years before he even kind of told anyone because he, he thought it gave him that much of an edge in terms of his recovery and what he's achieving at 34, 35 years of age is just absolutely ridiculous. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, you, various diets work. You know, there's plenty of people who aren't vegan who have got amazing um, sporting careers and there's plenty now who who are vegan or, you know, plant-based, I guess, which is a more kind of, um, a more sort of up-to-date way, I, I guess, of, of, of calling it. Because I think kind of veganism goes into certain certain things and beliefs which um, can be very, very difficult to sort of achieve. I think that, you know, some people take it to the extreme where they won't get on a bus because it might hit a few flies and stuff like that. So I think that's kind of going to the point of being probably a little bit too far. Um but I think, you know, um, there's certainly a lot of positives in terms of like, you know, not being involved in um, uh, kind of like the factory farming and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And the amount of um, the amount of land we're sort of like destroying really to, um, um, you know, to, to, to feed all these animals is, is kind of getting out of control, really. So I think I think that overall it can be a really good thing. And um, but, you know, each to their own, it's, it's for people to decide for themselves what they want to do. Um, but I certainly have, have felt the benefits of it and, and I would recommend it to anyone. But I'd say to anyone who's potentially listening to do their own research and decide if it's for them or not. And if it's not, then it's not. And if it is, then then that's great as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's certainly something I'm going to be you know sticking with for sure. Time for a quick quiz, Neil. I'm going to read some numbers to you. Tell me if you can guess what these numbers are. 103, 70, 
133, 93, 75, 123, 119, 114. Any idea what those numbers are? Uh, sorry, say that again. 103, is 70. It, is it snooker related? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. It's you related. Okay, okay. Yeah, so go. So 103, 70, 133, 93, 75, 123, 119, 114. What do those numbers mean? I can see you're stumped by this, so I'll tell you. Are they the breaks I made in the final against Ronnie in the Tour Very good in the Tour Championship final, yeah. Just when you read them like that. <laughs> How did I get yeah, that? that? Yeah! Well, listen, you, you, you made them, Neil. <laughs> if anyone's going to get that one right, it's you. But the reason I bring it up is because I want to ask, is that, in terms of pure quality, the best you've ever played? Uh, yes. Yes, it is. I think that the the best quality match, including my where my opponent as well... Uh, would have been the champion champions final oh, a, couple, a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah, with, with with eight George. centuries between yeah. us. I had five of them, and um, just it had absolutely everything you could want from from a great final. Um, but that tour championship performance, even in the quarter final, like the, the you know, because there's only the top eight in the world, so you're playing like the top eight players on form. You know, the way I played against Jack, the way I played against Selby, and the way I played against Ronnie combined was is certainly my best ever. Um, performance in, in a tournament from start to finish, and yeah, that final it was it was just an absolute dream. Just every time I got in, I scored really heavily. Safety was great, long potting was great, and um, yeah, some you know really really kind words from from Ronnie afterwards as well. There's a growing feeling in the game that the Tour Championship might be on its way to establishing itself as the second biggest event for the reasons you mentioned. It's the top eight players of the season. It's long matches all the way. What do you think? Um, I think that the I think that the Worlds in UK are, are number one and two. Um, I think the Masters and Tour Championships would would certainly be three and four. Um, the Masters is different because it's not ranking and it's based on a two-year list where the top 16, so it's not really 100% on current form. So I think that the, uh, as far as the tournament goes and how hard it is to win, I'd say the Tour Championship is harder to win than the Masters because you're playing the top eight guys on form and you're playing over best out of 19. You're not playing best out of 11, where which was a, a pretty quick kind of race. Obviously not compared to a best out of seven, but sure. a best out of 19, you've got to beat someone over two sessions, you know. And I think that um, the two championship, I think if you ask a lot of players, that would be one of the top two or three that they really, really want to win. I think that, you know, so, you know, just to show you how good a season I had last season by winning the UK and the tour championships, which is, you know, two of the, the, the top three, you know. So, um yeah, it's a tournament that um, I remember playing Ronnie in the final of a couple of years ago, where where he beat me thirteen eleven, and yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an awesome tournament. It, it's really nice knowing uh, as a top player to you know to play a match where you know the, the best out of sevens and best out of nines are, are fine to play when you when you're playing with one hundred twenty eight players, um, but when you have got the top eight in the world and it's best out of nineteen, you know there's there's no room for excuses. You, whenever you get beat, you're getting beat by the better man. And um, and you know that you know to win it, you're going to have to play your best stuff. So um, yeah, it's a brilliant addition to the calendar. I think that probably the champion champion. I'd say you get, you know, you'd have like the world's UK masters, champion champions, and and the tour championships. Those five for me are like the clear like the big blockbuster events. And then you know I think that. Um, Maybe something like the China Open, if you were to consider like something from overseas, I guess you'd say the China Open would be up there as well. After all that, <laughs> he misses the green, but 
It really doesn't matter. He's won the tournament. Neil Robertson with a terrific display here today in Newport. It was 4-4 at the end of the first session, but he turned it on tonight. Four centuries in the match from the Australian. He wins the 2021 Kazoo Tour Championship. He's beaten Ronnie O'Sullivan by 10 frames to four. One shot, one moment can be the difference. Between victory and failure, ecstasy and despair. To be a champion is to be ready when that moment comes. Thanks very much, Neil Robertson. Your champion, Neil Robertson. Kazoo UK Championship Snooker, the York Barbican, starts from the 23rd of November. Book now at wst.tv forward slash tickets. All of which brings us nicely to your defence of the UK title. I remember thinking at the time that amazing final against Judd last season was actually very similar to when you won the World Championship. It went on very late. Yeah, became yeah. a real slog. But what was it like to play a match of that quality and that importance in an empty arena? <laughs> it was really weird because um, the first session was, 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 was very good. The second session was... Um, started okay, but then I think that um, it became a little bit tougher. Like um, you know, some of the the, the, the frames were, were tight, tightly contested, and then and then yeah, sort of. I think uh, you know Judd was was he uh, nine eight up, and then he went into the pack on fifty something on a blue. He didn't actually have to go into the into the reds at the time. Though I was thinking like I was actually hoping that he would go into the reds because that was his best chance to lose position, and he ended up missing like a red bridging over another ball. And then um, I remember, so 9-8 down, I remember um, you know, potting a, a pretty tough opening red and then talking to, to Tony Drago called me the next day. I potted an unbelievable brown in the middle where if I miss it, I lose the final. Um, and a lot of players would have maybe rolled up behind a colour there. Um, but I think in that sort of situation that I knew that if I potted the brown, I'd have if I could hold myself together, I'd have a great chance of, of clearing up and forcing a decider. And Tony Drago says that throughout all the years, he's always felt that Stephen Hendry's brown that he rolled in against um, Jimmy White in the, final, yeah. in the final of the Worlds was, was the best pressure ball he's ever seen potted until that brown in the middle that I played, because he, he now thinks that that's, a, that's the best pressure ball he's ever seen. Potted. That's an amazing tribute, because that shot from Henry is so legendary. Similar things. Yeah. Do or die, roll it in dead weight. Um, because Drago compares it saying that if I miss the brown, I lose the UK Championship. If Henry missed the brown, he doesn't lose the World Championship. He goes very far behind, but he doesn't lose it. And so that, that, was, that was the big difference for him. And you know, the fact I went on to clear up as well, and then in the decider, it was terrible because I remember getting a chance in the decider and I, I played a really aggressive shot. I punched through off a red low in the pack, spread the reds nicely. On, on, I'm on 20-something. And I'm like, it, it must have been like a millimetre or less than a millimetre off from being able to pot the pink with the spider. And if I could pot the pink with the spider, then the way I cleared up the frame before, I'm in the mindset thinking, well, I'm just going to win the frame in one visit now. It was very basic from there for, 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 for my standard. As long as I kept the white under control, you know, I was going to win in one visit. And I spent like four or five minutes It was in the end. It was absolutely ridiculous. And the funny thing is that it doesn't seem like it's that long. But with snooker, and I, I remember Mark Selby having a problem with it as well uh, in the Scottish, I think it was. Is this the six-minute shot? Yeah, with Mark, um, is that when your brain can't make a decision, 
it's very hard to just get down and actually play a shot because you can't actually make 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 your mind up. Um, you're not looking to stall or anything like that. Like there's no way any of the top guys do that. Um, and then I remember being like, because it was so close to being able to pot the pink. I didn't want to play safe and end up losing the final. So I was just tr- I was trying to do everything possible and trying to convince myself that I could actually pot the pink. And I remember looking at it like ten times and I just couldn't decide like. Like five of the times I was convinced I could, five of the times I was convinced I couldn't. And um, in the end, I ended up playing safe. I apologized to Judge straight away saying, look, I'm sorry, mate, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I could just couldn't decide what to do. Um, this was directly straight after I played the shot. I, just held, I, I said, look, I'm sorry, I just could not, I couldn't see. I just couldn't. Because I'm having to see through reds and, and over balls, if I was in practice, I would have just probably got down and played with a touch of side, you know, because there's no consequence if you miss yeah. in practice. It doesn't make it. But if I missed, then I was probably going to lose. Um, and then I remember later on in that, that frame, um, which was a very topsy-turvy frame because I remember getting a good chance to win. Um, I missed a thin-cut red, which, which, would have, which would have won me it, and then Judd had half a chance to clear up. And then, you know, um, he, he fluke snookered me behind the yellow. I've come out of the snooker and... I fluke snookered him back and then then it was just topsy-turvy, topsy-turvy. He's butchered a safety shot and then left the yellow over the middle where I just needed the yellow to be 25 in front of the green. And then he snookered me on it behind the black and it was just, it was a unbelievable emotional roller coaster for both of us because he he then potted the yellow and then um, was on the green and then he, he spent like two or three minutes deciding what to do on the green himself. So then he, mm-hmm. it was roles reversed where he couldn't decide what to do. He, he desperately wanted to go for the green but he knows if he misses the green, he loses. And so then he ended up sort of playing safe as well. And, and obviously he had that chance at the end, right, where he's clearing up and, you know, he knocked in a, an unbelievable um, green, I think, with his opposite hand, screwing, screwing in down the rail and then coming up perfect on the brown. And then he didn't land quite right in the blue. He knocked in a good, good pressure blue. Um, I'm in my chair thinking, like, I'd be absolutely devastated to lose because I'd played so well in the tournament. I'd broken the record of centuries made in the event and, you know, played so well and, you know, really tough draw as well. The players I've beaten, like Selby in the, in, the, in the semi-finals, the way I played against him. And then sort of you're getting your runners up speech ready. You're, you know, you're going to be as – try to, you know, you tell yourself to be as gracious as possible and show him the absolute respect that, he des- that anyone deserves winning a match like that. And then he's um then, then he's sort of like he's 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 missed the pink and then um and Mark Williams said to me actually after the final he said that um no one gives me enough credit for the pink that I potted because that was an awful shot to be left it was very thin sort of white coming twice across the table I didn't know if I was going to be cannoning into the black and could go in off any it was all on and um it was actually one of the sweetest shots I've ever hit in my career it was just like straight in the middle of the pocket quick look at the scoreboard just <laughs> absolutely make sure I didn't need the black. I knew I didn't, but just like, yeah, I've won. I was like, oh, thank God for that. And then, um, yeah, I really felt for Judd because that's an awful position to be in as a losing finalist. I've, I've been there myself when, when you lose, you know, really, really tough matches. And that's just something that all top players experience. You experience the absolute massive highs and the massive lows. And, you know, that was just one of those moments for him. But then, you know, every credit to him, he's got one of these amazing parts about him. Where his determination to bounce back from hard defeats is incredible. I think that... Um, I think when I won the uh, champion of champions, he bounced back really well from that a couple of years ago. And then when I beat him in the final of the UK, he's bounced back a couple of weeks later and won the Grand Prix, you know. So yeah, he's, a, he's a true champion of the sport. And 
you know, really enjoy our battles. It was one of the great moments, one of many great moments in your career, Neil. And as we wrap it up now, it seems to me, and it always has, that you're someone who really appreciates the life snooker has given you and you don't take any of it for granted. And maybe that all goes back to everything you went through in your early years to get to this stage. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I think that, you know, I remember um, in 2008, I was 8-0 down to Maguire in the World Championships and I was and I called... Um, called Cully, like Koldesh, who was, who was best friends with Paul Hunter. And um, I remember speaking to Cully about it, and like, oh, God, I'm playing safe. This is rubbish. Oh, get me out of here. You know, blah, blah, blah. I can't wait to have a night out in Leeds if I get beat or something like that. You know? And Cully's like, Cully's like, I tell you what, he goes, there's one person who would love to be 8-0 down at the Crucible right now, and that would be Paul. And so, and obviously Paul had passed away a couple of years um, you know, before that. And I thought, ever since then, I thought, no matter what situation you are in a match, I just think that there's always someone who would love to be in your situation right now. And uh, I always believe that, even to this day, that, you know, I find it amazing that some players can complain about, you know, certain things and, um, you know, when when you look at it, other, you know, other things that are going on in, in, in the world, that, you know, we're in a very fortunate position to be, you know, playing snooker for a living. So... Um, you know, sometimes, you know, there are hard times, like absolutely, you know, it's not always like perfect all the time, but, um, you know, there's, there's always someone off far worse off than you, you know, in life. And I think it's really important to appreciate that. Well, we started, Neil, more than an hour ago now, actually, talking about an off-table event, your wedding. Let's finish by talking about another off-table event, your 40th birthday, which is coming <laughs> up uh, early in the new year. Now, there was a time... I remember Ken Doherty actually saying that he didn't think a player could win a world championship in their 40s. Now, we've seen that's definitely not the case. You're still actually a few years younger than some of the other top players. So you've still got plenty of time left to build on the big legacy you've already built in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sport as a whole is just changing. Like the, the rules are changing all the time with how long you can prolong your career in any sport. You know, I think even the most physically draining ones, you know, you look at like Djokovic and Federer and Nadal, what, you know, they're still winning major major events and um, I think that the, the the more sort of sports science and the more players look after themselves, you know, snooker was was very much a sport in the 80s and 90s where it was was heavily sort of smoking and, and drinking culture, uh, very much the same way that, that football was in the 80s and 90s, you know. And it's been proven that if you take those things out of your life, then your eyesight, your your you know your physical well being is is you know it certainly sort of saves yourself quite a few years for sure. So. I think that, you know, as long as you look after yourself and your eyesight's good and, you know, you dedicate yourself to the game, um, there's no reason why you can't play for as, as long as you're physically kind of able to until maybe something unfortunate kind of does happen, maybe with your eyesight or, or your back or something like that. How long would you see that being for you, Neil? Up to the age of 50, maybe even beyond? I don't know. I mean, I'm always someone who would... Playing-wise, I would never sort of play and be happy being ranked in the 50s or 60s or 40s. I, I would, I would, I would definitely sort of always um, retire in the sport on, on on my terms, and it would always be, you know, kind of, you know, maybe wrapping things up at the Crucible or something like that. I'd probably the same way Stephen did um, before before coming back. Obviously, um, it would be something along the lines of that. I think that probably a lot of the other current top players would probably say the same. Well, I have to say, Neil, I've always thought of you as one of the most interesting people to talk to in any sport. You've really underlined that over the last hour and seven <laughs> minutes. So thanks so much for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast, and we really do wish you all the best for whatever does lie ahead for the rest of your career. Thanks yeah, you. it, was, it was great fun, and thank you for having me. 
Join me again next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast as Matthew Stevens offers a very honest assessment of a career which has brought him the UK Championship and the Masters, but never quite the biggest title of them all. You know, I admit I've underachieved. You know, I, I think I should be multiple, maybe, maybe you know, world champion. But yeah, you know, I've, I've, like I said, you know, about the Regal Masters, um, beating you know Mark, John, and Ronnie in that in that tournament. You know, to want to win it, and and I, well, I beat Stephen Henry in the final of the Northern Ireland Trophy in front of full house in Belfast. So you know, I've you know I've won a few tournaments, which I think a lot of people forget mm. <laughs> because they obviously only see the one ranking event. So yes, you know. I I admit, you know, I should have done better, but yeah, you you can't look back. You know, things happen. Like I said, you know, I lost my dad, and that took a few years out of me. Really, I prepared for the world championship for the next few years, and I think that's what showed in the results, I guess. But um, no, I I wouldn't change nothing. Um, I've had a, you know a decent career, and I've seen probably too many pubs in too many cities, I suppose, but. I wouldn't change it for the world. So that and much more will be coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye. Yes, sir. Mark Selby is still to be beaten in the Scottish Open. Only his second appearance and he has successfully retained the title. From the 6th to the 12th of December, snooker's top stars return to venue Cymru in Clandidno as part of the Bet Victor Home Nation Series. Book your tickets now at wst.tv forward slash tickets.